Our first reading uh, in our worship service, the celebratory anniversary service today, is a familiar text from Luke's Gospel, often read during this fall season, the story of Jesus and the ten sufferers of leprosy, or Hansen's disease. Listen now for what the Spirit is saying to you and to the church. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was going through the region between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, ten lepers approached him. Keeping their distance, as was the law, they called out, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, Jesus said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were made clean. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. He prostrated himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus asked, Were not ten made clean? But the other nine, where are they? Was none of them found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Then Jesus said to him, Get up and go on your way. Your faith has made you well. The word of the Lord. And then flip-flopping Old and New Testament, as we sometimes do here at PCUM, our second reading is from the Hebrew Scriptures, the prophet Jeremiah, 29th chapter, verses 1, and then verses 4 through 7. Listen to what the Spirit is saying to the church. These are the words of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the remaining elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat what they produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. The word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Spirit of God, may the meditations of our hearts together upon this, your word to us on this day, be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Maxie Dunham, a, a Christian author and preacher, tells the story of the time that Muhammad Ali, the great boxing champ, the greatest, was on a flight from New York to L.A. Just before takeoff, the flight attendant walked by Ali's seat and reminded him to fasten his seatbelt. Superman don't need no seatbelt, Ali said. The flight attendant, without even breaking stride, said, Superman don't need no airplane either. <laughs> Ali fastened his belt. No matter who we are, even if we're the greatest or think we are, the truth is none of us is completely self-sufficient. 
No person is an island. And though we try, and we try, and we try, even after we learn that, we, that it's simply impossible, nobody can make it on their own either. There is no superman. There is no super person. There is no one who can avoid the fact that the rain falls on everybody. So we'd better fasten our seatbelts. And the best way to do that from a faith perspective is the way this church has been doing it for 115 years. The best way to fasten your seatbelts for the ride that's about to come is to practice gratitude. Rabbi Harold Kirshner is famous for writing the book When Bad Things Happen to Good People. It's an amazing book. I have a book by a Christian writer named Dave Burchett which I keep on my shelf so people can see it. It's it's titled, When Bad Christians Happen to Good People. But that's a whole different topic and sermon. But Rabbi Kushner wrote this famous, incredibly popular book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. He also wrote another book called, Who Needs God? And in that book, Kushner said, religion is not primarily a set of beliefs, a collection of prayers, or a series of rituals. Religion is first and foremost a way of seeing. A life of faith cannot change the facts about the world we live in, but it can change the way we see those facts. And that in itself can make all the difference. So here's that way of seeing, that gratitude-driven way of seeing that helps us fasten our seatbelts for life. God is always acting first. Sometimes it's obvious, and sometimes you have to look. You have to clean your glasses. It's a very Protestant, Presbyterian, Reformed Protestant way of looking at things. In that way of seeing, gratitude isn't a way of feeling, it's a way of life. It's a way of seeing. God loves first. God confers and gives grace, as Millie said in her prayer earlier, in her introduction to that prayer, through Jesus Christ, through the self-offering of God, driven by love and love alone, God gives us everything we need, including that salvific relationship, even before we're old enough to understand it or earn it or whatever we think we might have to do. God always loves first, and our part in the relationship, if you look at life this way, our part in the relationship is simply to see gratefully. To see the past gratefully, like we're doing today. To see the present gratefully, like we're doing today. And to do the even harder thing is to see the future gratefully. Our proper response to God's sovereign first action, which is always love, Our part of that, our response, is thanksgiving, to see God's hand in everything that is happening, and I mean everything. And then because of God's gratitude to expect God's hand in everything that's about to happen or will happen, you have to decide to see things with different glasses, with a different viewpoint. Greg Anderson, in a book called Living Life on Purpose, tells the story about a man whose wife had left him. 
So, as you might expect, he was completely depressed. He'd lost faith in himself. He had no confidence anymore. He lost, he lost faith in other people, in God. This man found no joy in living. One rainy morning, as he was sort of just getting through yet another day, he went to a small neighborhood restaurant for breakfast by himself. And although there were several people there at that little more, it was more like a diner, nobody was talking to anybody else. Everybody was kind of in their own little isolated, lonely world. And our miserable friend hunched over the counter uh, with the rest of them, stirring his coffee with a spoon. In one of the small booths along the window behind him was a young mother with her little girl. They had just been served their food, and the mom had sort of started tucking into her omelet when the little girl broke the sad silence in the whole diner by almost shouting, Mama, why don't we say our prayers first? And the waitress who had just served her that breakfast turned around and said, Sure, honey, that's okay. We, we pray here. Go ahead. Will you say the prayer for us? And so the little girl turned and looked at the whole rest of the diner and said, Bow your heads. And one by one, everybody's head bowed. And then she bowed her head, the little girl, and she folded her hands and she said, God is great, God is good, and we thank him for our food. Amen. That's the prayer I grew up saying, though we said it a lot faster when we were hungry. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. Amen. That prayer this little girl insisted on saying, interrupted her mother's eating on, to, to say, changed everything in that diner that day. The waitress sort of said to her boss as she went behind the counter, we should do that every day. All of a sudden, this man reported later, my whole frame of mind started to improve from that little girl's example. During my breakfast in that diner, I started to thank God for all that I did have and stop focusing in on all that I don't have. I started to be grateful, even in my sadness. We all understand the importance of gratitude. Most of us would value it pretty highly. But we don't really understand sometimes, I think, how it can radically change the way we live in this world if we really take it seriously, not just as a feeling, but as a way of living and seeing. When it comes to giving thanks to God, I don't suppose there's any story more sort of simply poignant and powerful than this story about the ten lepers that we read as our first reading this morning in Luke, right? Ten were healed, but did you catch the difference in wording? But only one was made well, because only one, and this, an unclean sort of, you know, outsider enemy of the Jewish religion, of the religion of Jesus and his closest followers, this Samaritan is the only one who chose to live thankfully, to turn back, to take the time, to not just focus on his own good fortune, but to give thanks to the source of that health, and that was Jesus. And Jesus himself, after he said, go, now your faith has made you not only healthy, but well. And there is a difference. Now our second text this morning, in my mind, builds upon the foundation laid by the first. And here we have really the contents of a letter, which is unusual in the Old Testament. Most of us are familiar with 
the, the epistles, the letters of the New Testament, most of which were written by Paul, but not as many as most of us grew up thinking were written by Paul, but whether they're anonymous or from Timothy or Titus, John or Paul, these letters are really a, a characteristic of the New Testament Christian biblical witness. But here in Jeremiah, we have a letter carried by a royal emissary from Judah, the country, if you will, uh, that well, which Jerusalem was the capital where God's people lived, this letter came from Judah teetering itself on the edge of destruction all the way back east to Babylon in modern-day Iraq to those Judeans, those intellectuals and leaders of Judah who had already experienced the very worst possible thing that could have happened to them much like the folks on the west coast of Florida and other parts of this country have just experienced as that hurricane and all that flooding hit them. These people had experienced complete destruction, domination, and exile from their home and from God's chosen land, this promised land which the divine ruler of the universe had promised to them and given them, and now it was all gone. And they were forcibly removed and taken as essentially prisoners to live in the dominating, the, the victorious country of Babylon. These are the recipients of this letter today, these short verses from Jeremiah. And Jeremiah was probably the last person these exiles wanted to hear from at that moment because they probably expected him to be smugly saying, I told you so, because other parts of the prophet Jeremiah, the book of the prophet Jeremiah, are simply warnings the Judean people. It's coming. I know you think you're God's people. I know you think you're faithful, but you're not living gratefully. You're focusing too much on yourselves, and pretty soon Babylon will be at your doorstep. Indeed, Babylon was. But Jeremiah is not rubbing it in here. Jeremiah is actually, instead of gloating, giving them a glimmer of hope for the future. Build houses and live in them, he says, even while you are in exile. Plant gardens and eat what you grow. Marry off your sons and your daughters, your children, so that they may have children. Seek the welfare of the city where I have planted you, because in its welfare, you will find your welfare, even if it's not the way you envisioned it at the start. In other words, God through Jeremiah basically says, make yourself at home wherever you are, wherever you are planted. On an emotional level, the people of Judah felt like so many of us feel when we're in a tough spot, maybe like we all felt and have felt during this pandemic. We're a lot like Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz. We just want to click our heels and say, there's no place like home. There's no, can I just go back to when it was better? Instead, Jeremiah is saying to them, resign yourselves to the life you have, and in submitting yourself to that, you're going to find an incredible, deep, and rich life of faith. God has other plans for us when we think we've taken a wrong turn or when we have gone into a dead end in our lives. Jeremiah says, thus says the Lord, in other words, I am speaking on behalf of the God of Israel. And just in that phrase, just says the Lord, the God of Israel, he's reminding the people of God's goodness, God's bounty, God's forgiveness in their past, how God has kept promises to them over and over and over. 
to all of you exiles, all of you who are suffering, he says, I want you to build houses, to start living. Any, even though I have sent you into exile. And that's interesting that in this telling of the story, the Jewish biblical witnesses that God is a part of bad things that happen as well as the blessings in our lives. It, at, at one level, this is a kind of a disturbing thing to face up to. But the truth is, a God who had nothing to do with the bad, challenging, suffering moments of our lives would not have any ability to heal us in those tough spots, to bring grace and hope and new life. Evil, suffering, violence, poverty, they would, they would have too much power for a God who had nothing to do with them. But our belief is that God is sovereign even over all that is bad, all that is not of God in this world. And so Jeremiah is saying, I have a plan for you still. I want you to know that the God who brought you here, who always keeps his promises to you, is going to keep promises to you again. So keep doing what you're doing, live your life, and be faithful. And if you'll let your gratitude change the way you see things, not only about yesterday and today, but also about tomorrow, then you will prosper. Barbara Brown Taylor, the professor of, uh, uh, and scholar of preaching, an amazing preacher herself, had this to say about what we've been doing here the last 115 years in this really wonderfully spirit-filled Presbyterian congregation, this church family of visitors and members and longtime members and clergy and staff. She says this, on the occasions when Jesus praises people's faith, most Christians automatically assume that Jesus means their faith in his divinity which he then rewards by helping them out. But that is just another sorry example of transactional theology. According to this theology, if you believe the right things about Jesus, then he will help you. If you don't, he won't. I'm not sure, Barbara Brown Taylor says, where this idea came from, but in, these, in the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus seems way more concerned with making people well than in making people believe in him. Jesus does not proclaim himself, but the coming of God's kingdom, this reign of justice and peace, when there is um, mutual forbearance and love, even though none of us is perfect. The only thing people have to believe, Taylor says, is that God, who has helped them in the past, will help them again, somehow, even if it's not exactly as they planned it. Remember that this special place, this congregation, which is more even than these beautiful stained glass windows and this incredible sanctuary and our amazing church facility, this place for well over a century now, moving into our 116th year, and especially recently coming out of this very tumultuous, not just in terms of health, but emotionally, this difficult time of COVID, is a place where there has been healing and blessing and laughing and crying and forgiving and serving and we're, all those things have been going on because of gratitude. Because this congregation, and you can feel its spirit, is, chooses to see things differently than a self-absorbed, self-focused world in which we live. And it compels us to keep celebrating not just what has been or even what is today, which is so amazing, in the fall of 2022, 
But if we keep seeing with the eyes and the heart of God to keep celebrating what will be, and I am looking forward to it, uh, at least for some of the next 115 years. Amen.